This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Well, another day, another podcast episode. Thanks for joining me again. It is almost the end of 2023. It always feels like at this point of the year that the year has absolutely flown by and it's difficult to understand how that happened. And I think it's just because everybody's very busy. Everybody has lots to do. And so you're just running from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. And soon enough, you look up and many months have passed by and maybe a full year has passed by. Uh, as has almost happened here. So we've had a, a very eventful year in in the podcast. Um, I have almost released an episode per week this year, which is my my typical goal. So if you've if you've missed any, you know, there's about 50 of them to listen to that are just from from this year, and you could dig into those if you want. They're on a wide variety of topics. Everything from charitable planning to sort of complex trust and tax planning for high net worth individuals to business succession planning to very, I'd say, more personal focused uh, topics like well-being. Uh, I hate to call it mental health, but because I think it, in our society that comes with a little bit of a, of a bias to it, but, but topics that relate to kind of our... Um, managing stress, managing teams, managing projects, um, all of these topics that come in all these different varieties are really meant to be a resource to listeners with the assumption that most listeners, and if this isn't you, it doesn't mean that I'm trying to exclude you from the podcast, but most listeners are in or around the industry that deals with personal wealth or private wealth. And so therefore, uh, you may be experiencing uh, a lot of these topics, both in, in the way that you're interacting with clients, how you're helping them, as well as the stress that falls on the professional. And these are also stresses that fall on clients too, of course, in their own industry. So it's good to know about them. So there's a, anyways, a, a wide variety of topics that's intentional. There will continue to be a wide variety of topics. Um, coming up pretty soon in the future, we'll have an episode about art artwork, planning with art, uh, which is a fun one. I, I'm looking forward to releasing that soon. And then I'm planning on releasing an episode about irrevocable trusts and tax basis planning, uh, because it seems to be a topic that can be given very surface level attention, but it's important to really dig into the details when it comes to those two things, which feel like they could be on opposite sides of each other, but in reality and in the way that things really plan out, that's not necessarily the case. But we'll have a whole podcast, a whole podcast episode to discuss that topic, and you'll learn probably more about it than uh, you ever wanted to know. And you'll be sick of the episode probably by the time that we're done talking about it, but that's okay. At least you'll you'll have all that good information. All right, today I wanted to talk about a topic that. Uh, you may or may not have come across. I mean, this is this is something that it for me it seems to pop up in very unlikely corners. I'll explain why, and that is what are called passive foreign investment companies. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, all of my clients are U.S. and they just invest in the U.S., and so this isn't something that deals with foreign companies, doesn't really have anything to do with me and what I do day to day. I 
think that could possibly be true 98% of the time. It's the 2% of the time that you run into these things that you really need to know. And of course, if you're dealing with international clients, you're going to run into this issue pretty frequently. So let me let me do a little bit of definitional work here, bring everybody kind of up to speed on on what constitutes a passive foreign investment company. And then uh, I'll talk about how they're taxed, some of the attendant issues with these things, and maybe some of the planning. I won't be able to give you, of course, every single detail that there is to know about passive foreign investment companies. It's just too broad a topic, like everything. But hopefully this will at least give you an introduction that is sufficient that you will be able to identify these things. So a passive foreign investment company, first of all, is a foreign corporation. And that term in and of itself is a bit of a loaded term. And so I'll get back to it in a second. But it's a foreign corporation if at least 75% of its gross income is from passive sources or at least on average, 50% of its assets produce passive income. So passive income being things like interest, dividends, rent, royalties, those sorts of things. So if you imagine a, a company that only owns stock in another company and therefore only really collects dividends, a so-called holding company, well, that could be a passive foreign investment company if it meets one of these two thresholds, okay? A foreign corporation then, and passive foreign investment companies or PFIX are always foreign corporations. A foreign corporation is a foreign entity that is viewed as a corporation for U.S. purposes. You have to look into what are called the check the box regulations. They're in Treasury Regulation 301, uh, 301.7701-2, excuse me. Um, well, you really have to look at dash two and dash three, I think, to really get a, a complete picture of these uh, foreign corporations. But those are those are generally referred to as the check the box regulations. And the check the box regulations, in essence, say if you have a foreign company and it doesn't fall on a list of foreign companies or varieties of foreign companies that are always treated as corporations, and that foreign company gives all of its members limited liability protection, then it will be viewed as a default as a corporation in the United States. And a a corporation that is a foreign corporation then has to be tested under these particular rules. Okay, these passive foreign investment company rules. I mentioned there's a list in the check the box regulations. So they're, the check the box regulations under the dash two regs, they have a list of certain types of uh, companies in particular countries. So it goes sort of country by country, and then it lists off the type of entity in that country that, it, that are always corporations. Then, of course, if they're formed in that other country, then it's a foreign corporation. And there's no getting around it. Every other kind of foreign corporation that doesn't fit into that into that list, you can actually make an election, a check-the-box election, potentially, I should say, uh, to make that company be treated either as a disregarded entity in the U.S. if it has one member, sort of like a single-member LLC, or as a partnership if it has multiple members. Again, sort of like a multi-member LLC in the U.S. that hasn't elected to be a corporation. So let's say that you check all those boxes. You've got a foreign corporation. It meets these passive income thresholds. Do you have a passive foreign investment company? Well, the answer could be yes. And that doesn't really tell the full story because then you have to see whether that passive foreign investment company is also what's called a controlled foreign corporation or CFC. And it would be a controlled foreign corporation in essence if more than 50% control of that company is held by U.S. shareholders. And of that group of U.S. shareholders, you only include the ones that hold at least 10% of the stock. So 
you add up all the Americans, you add up all the stock that they own, you figure out whether they own 10% or more, and you drop off the list the ones that don't. And if the remaining group owns 50% or more than 50%, excuse me, of the voter value of the shares of that foreign corporation, then it is a controlled foreign corporation. And it will be treated as a controlled foreign corporation or CFC and not as a PFIC under the typical tax rules. So let's say now you've carved off this, so it's like a big thin diagram. So you've carved off this group of companies that are foreign, they're treated as corporations, they meet these passive thresholds for PFIX. You carve out the ones that are truly CFCs, and now you're left with just the regular old ones that are PFIX. They're only PFIX. Those are the ones you have to be concerned about. PFIX are very special creatures, but they, they pop up in a lot of different contexts. So the main one, particularly for private individuals, are foreign funds, foreign mutual funds, foreign private equity funds, foreign venture funds, any kind of foreign fund. And these foreign funds are almost always treated as corporations in the U.S. unless they're very forward-thinking and they uh, make check-the-box elections for American investors. And they are almost always going to meet these passive income, passive asset thresholds. So they're more than likely they're going to be PFIX. You do have to look at them, but that's the one that really pops up a lot. So if you have uh, if you have a, a client, for example, and they've got an investment account abroad, maybe they lived abroad. Uh, it could be an investment account, by the way, that is inside of a retirement vehicle abroad. You know, they lived in the UK, they lived in Germany, they lived in Southeast Asia, they were working there, they were investing there, of course, like a normal human who lives and invests and saves for retirement where they are, and they buy these foreign mutual funds. Or they have an investment advisor there who is licensed to help their clients invest in foreign funds, but they're not licensed to help their clients invest in American funds, so therefore their clients, including the Americans, are invested in these uh, foreign funds, Okay. Then you could have these passive foreign investment companies. So, and, and again, it could pop up in these situations that are easy to miss and easy to just sort of assume away. Uh, but just because of life, they pop up on someone's balance sheet. The someones, of course, that we're concerned about are the Americans, U.S. citizens, uh, passport holders. They, they've got a problem with passive foreign investment companies, but also residents of the U.S. So resident would be someone who has a green card. They're a permanent resident, and for them, they're treated like citizens, in essence. And then people who meet the substantial presence test uh, that we've talked about a few times on the podcast, but just as a reminder, substantial presence test says if you're a non-U.S. citizen and you don't have a green card and you are physically present in the U.S., for at least 183 days then during the current calendar year, then you are treated as a resident of the U.S. for tax purposes, and then these PFIC rules become important to you. And that 183 days is tested on a three-year weighted average testing, and it takes all of the current days into account as long as there's more than 30, and then it takes one-third of the first preceding year's days into account, and then it takes one-sixth of the second preceding year's days into account, and you add all those together, and if it's 183 or more, then you're a resident. And basically the math is if you're here in the U.S. present for 122 days each year for three years, you will meet the substantial presence test, even though in no year, no single year were you present in the U.S. at least 183 days because of this weird weighted average testing thing that we do for substantial presence. Okay, so that's the test. So let's say you've got somebody who's a U.S. citizen or they have a green card 
or they meet the substantial presence test and they own a PFIC. What happens? Well, they've got a few little challenges on their hands. One is the reporting of the PFIC and then attendant reporting. The second is the income tax effect of that PFIC. And I'd say the third is potentially the transfer tax effect of that PFIC. So the PFIC has to be reported. Uh, it, there's, a, there's a form for reporting the PFIC. It's IRS form 8621. And you have to file that to report your ownership in the PFIC. If you're making elections, you, you, you make those elections and report them on the 8621. We'll talk about those in a second. If you uh, are reporting income, you report that on the 8621. So that's sort of the, the main information filter for the IRS when it comes to PFIX. And you file a separate 8621 per PFIX. So if you have a, a large fund, you could have a lot of attachments to your return. Then that PFIX could be reported on other forms like an FBAR. That is possible and because it could be in an account of some variety. And so you'd have to report it elsewhere. So you and there could be other uh, foreign forms that have to be foreign information report foreign information report forms. Excuse me, that have to be filed with the IRS annually that relate to ownership of the PFIC. Then on the income tax side of things, these old PFICs they fit into one of three varieties. At least this is what the Treasury regulations, or, or I should say, the proposed Treasury regulations tell us. They are either 1291 funds, 1291 funds, 1291 being the section in the code that talks about taxation of PFIX, or one of the sections, I should say. They could be, so they could be 12, 1291 funds. They could be electing, uh, qualified electing funds, QEF, or they could be subject to a mark-to-market election, MTM, mark-to-market election. So a 1291 fund allows the shareholder to defer paying tax on any income that's being earned inside the PFIC. So say the investment fund, right? It's uh, an investment fund in euro bonds. I don't know. And the euro bonds are paying money into the fund and that's it. But it's not paying out money out of the fund to shareholders. With the 1291 fund, no problem. You don't pay any tax just because those euro bonds were paying interest into the fund. And so you don't have to pay tax on that income in the U.S. However, when in the future you do receive a distribution, more than likely, or you sell the shares, more than likely, you're going to have what's called an excess distribution. Uh, and that excess distribution is taxed at ordinary income tax rates, plus an interest charge applies as if you had underpaid your tax beginning on the amount of this income amount, beginning in the first year of your holding period of that fund or that PFIC. So if you had held it for 10 years, then you finally took some money out of it, you'd be paying interest over a 10-year period. Of course, the interest number, if it's a long enough holding period, could be bigger than the income number. And so this interest charge can be very, very penalizing. Not a great result sometimes. I would say most of the time, not a great result. And then, of course, if you sell it, a similar rule applies. Okay, you, you're going to pay tax at the highest rates, and you're going to be subject to this interest charge on the gains if there is a gain. Your other option would be to make an election to treat the PFIC as a qualified electing fund or QEF. If you do that, then what happens is you don't get any deferral year to year. Instead, you, the shareholder, report your pro rata share of the net earnings and gains of that PFIC directly on your uh, tax return, sort of like a partnership in the U.S. And so you don't get any deferral, but that adjusts your basis up if it's a net gain. Uh, so your basis in the stock goes up, sort of like with a partnership. And then if you're distributed that money later, you don't get taxed on it again. So you sort of prepay the tax, but then you don't have to pay tax again when you get the money out of the fund later on. 
but you're not subject to this 1291 fund rule and the interest charge goes away. If you've already owned the PFIC and now you're making the QEF election, then it sort of continues to be a 1291 fund for all the past unless you make an election to be treated as if you sold the stock to sort of cleanse that stock from the 1291 fund status into QEF status, purely QEF status. So you have to remember that. But so, 12, so a QEF election can be kind of handy. You have to do you have to have pass through treatment on your ownership of that PFIX stock, but you don't have to pay this interest charge. And that's kind of nice. Downside being you're paying phantom tax and the QEF fund itself, the actual fund or entity, might not be paying out money to help you offset your extra your extra phantom tax liability. So like a typical U.S. partnership, I'd say, uh, as a general rule or sort of general kind of best practice, would distribute money out of their out of the partnership to the U.S. share uh, partners, excuse me, so that they can cover their share of taxes on the income of the partnership, even if the partnership's not going to distribute all that income to the partners because maybe they want to redeploy it in the business. So they distribute some cash out to the partners every year so they can pay their taxes because the partners have to pay tax for the partnership income. Well, with these QF funds, that might not be the way they do it. And you could have investors in the funds who are non-US, they don't have the same issue. They don't want money out of the fund. They want it all reinvested. So you can get into a situation where you have phantom income, no money coming to you from the fund to help you offset that income for U.S. tax purposes. So it's a little bit of a double-edged sword on the QEF fund. Then you can only make the QEF fund or QEF election to treat the PFIC as a QEF QEF qualified electing fund if the fund itself gives you the information you need to calculate your pro rata share of the net gains, which basically means you need financial statements um, in effect from the fund, and you might not be able to get that information. So if you can't get that information, you're not permitted to make this election. Your alternative option could be the mark-to-market election, the MTM election. Mark-to-market is for uh, investments and funds that are in essence traded on an open market. So it has a it has a floating rate or a floating value. You can you can value it. It's not a public market. So it's it's not an illiquid uh, investment. Whereas a QF fund could necessary could be sort of by definition completely illiquid. Uh, mark to market funds are just think of like things that are sold over public markets. Um, so you could make a mark to market election. If you do that, what happens is every year you adjust the value of the stock based off of its market value up or down. If its closing value is higher in year two than it was in year one, then you pay tax at ordinary income tax rates on the increased value and you increase your basis in in that fund and you don't get taxed again on that share of the value. So you you sort of like a QEF, you're paying as you go. Likewise, or, or maybe inversely, better said, if the value went down in year two, you, the American, get to take a loss and it's an ordinary loss. So it can offset ordinary income. So that's a nice benefit. There's not a lot of those uh, out there in the world. And you adjust your basis down. So then if you later sell the stock in that MTM, you're selling it with this adjusted basis, either up or down. And that can be handy. Again, you have a similar issue with the QEF where you're probably not getting money from the fund every year to help you offset the gains if there is a gain. So you're very likely going to have to come out of pocket to cover that cost annually. And the gains year to year are ordinary income. So you're getting taxed at higher rates, but you don't have to pay this 1291 fund interest charge 
and that's a benefit. I mentioned that there could be a transfer tax issue with PFIX. I, I say that mostly to remind folks that if you are a U.S. resident or a U.S. citizen, and in this case, residency is based on domicile, so if you're domiciled in the U.S. or you're a U.S. citizen, our transfer tax system applies to your worldwide transfers and your worldwide assets at death. And that would include, of course, PFIX. So you can't just exclude these. The other thing is when you die, your successors do not get a basis step up in your PFIX stock. PFIX stock is, in essence, treated as, at least according to the IRS and the Treasury, is treated as income with respect to a decedent property or so-called 691 income property, and you do not get an adjusted basis for the 691 income that's sort of built into that asset. The idea being that if the decedent hadn't died, they would have realized ordinary income tax on that asset, sort of like an IRA, and therefore you don't get a basis adjustment. Those are the rules for uh, 691 assets or income in respect of a decedent assets under section uh, 1014. So that's the that's the result of PFIX. You you kind of have you have it going both ways. You have to pay not too pleasant income taxes while you're alive. When you die, could be subject to estate tax depending on the value of your worldwide estate. And the people who come after you, they don't get a stepped up basis if they're Americans, and so they almost step into your shoes on the negative income tax side of things. PFIX are are everywhere when you start looking for them, and um, it's very very hard to manage them. Usually for Americans, it is best for them to divest themselves of PFIX. The numbers would have to be exceptionally compelling to accept taking a haircut on the income tax side that is as aggressive as the haircut you take on a 1291 fund, a QEF, or MTM on these PFIX in light of overall returns on that investment fund. So, I mean, if you had an investment fund that was making ex exceptional gains, so exceptional that you couldn't duplicate those gains somewhere else, even with this huge income tax load, then yeah, it would make sense in my mind. And sometimes I hear fund advisors from foreign jurisdictions suggest that, well, people want to be diversified across the world with their investing, and so they can invest abroad. And that is a fair statement. And that is, I, I think, a very fair position. You can invest through U.S. funds, U.S.-based funds that then invest abroad. There are plenty of those. Those are not PFIX because those funds are not foreign corporations. They're formed in the U.S. Or you could invest directly into stock of foreign companies or directly into bonds sold by foreign companies or foreign countries that are not held inside of funds. And then the direct ownership of stock or direct ownership of those bonds would not cause you to be the owner of a PFIC. And that can be a good alternative for American investors because the exposure, the negative exposure to PFIX is just, it's so high. It's a really brutal regime, these PFIX. It's one of these things where you see it in the tax code and you scratch your head a little bit about why are we being so mean about this particular type of investment? I suspect it has to do with a couple of things, which is very typical in the international arena of number one, preventing bad behavior. Because if you can stick your money in a foreign fund and the IRS doesn't know about it and it's earning you money and then you pay no tax on that money, you're evading taxes in the US. So we don't want people to do that. Of course, some a normal investor is not really fitting in that category. So it's it would be a rule targeted at 
very bad actors, but it comes with this huge bludgeon that affects very many people. That's very typical in the international arena. So I think that's one motivator. The second motivator, I suspect, is simply that the U.S. government wants to encourage Americans to invest in our markets, not in foreign markets, particularly consumer level investments. Although these PFIC rules can apply easily to multinational companies. I don't want to leave you with the impression that this is only a consumer issue. But on the consumer side, I think that the U.S. government clearly has a policy that favors investing in U.S. markets and not in foreign markets. So I think that's where they're probably coming from. And that's why we have these very weird rules. Okay, that may be more than you ever wanted to know about PFIX. Um, hopefully that was helpful. Hopefully that at least gives you some framing of the issue if you're unfamiliar with these or is a good overview and reminder if you've run into these PFIX before. As usual, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I really appreciate it, and I'll see you next time. Hey, listeners. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.